you see an awful lot of officers being killed in the Marines. In fact, I think I would go so far as to say, just as it was in the British Army in the First World War, it was the most dangerous rank to hold in the whole of the American military in the Second World War, because so many of them were killed. The, the standards were so high and the expectations were so high from the men that, that they almost had to leave from the front if they, if they wanted to survive. Hello and welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. My name is Oliver Webb Carter and I'm the editor and your host. Today I'm speaking with Saul David, who's a friend of the show and you may remember him from his chat about the SBS earlier on this year. Well, he has a new book out, Devil Dogs, which follows a single US Marines company throughout their war in the Pacific. They are first in, last out, and the style of the book is much like Band of Brothers, the legendary Easy Company that was the subject of the hit HBO TV show made by Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg. Saul's book is a thrilling read and keeps you hooked all the way from Guadalcanal to the shores of Japan. Saul is a highly acclaimed historian and he's been writing wonderful history books for many years. From his books on the 19th century imperial British history covering the First Afghan War, the Crimean War, the Indian Mutiny and the Zulu War. And in the last years he's ventured into the 20th century with books on the First and Second World Wars. He's also a presenter of a podcast, Battleground Ukraine, which covers the current conflict between Russia and those brave Ukrainians. He has many guests on that podcast, including Max Hastings, who's a great friend of this parish. So we talk a little bit about that podcast as well and the situation in Ukraine. Do subscribe if you can, and leave a review if you could. That'd be wonderful. I'd be eternally grateful. Coming up, I've got Roger Morehouse talking about the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, the alliance between Soviet Russia and Nazi Germany. And I've got a bonus podcast on top 10 families of history, which occurred to me after speaking with Simon Seabag Montefiore a couple of weeks ago. In the meantime, I'll hand you over to me speaking with Saul David. Saul David, welcome back to the uh, the podcast. Uh, you're an old friend of the show, and it's fantastic to have you on because you, you you're writing books at a rate of knots at the moment. Um, and the last time you were on, we were talking about your SBS book, but now you've got a new book out, Devil Dogs, um, which is first in, last out. It's the King Company of the U.S. Marines from Guadalcanal to the shores of Japan. Um, so I wanted to get you on because it's, a, I've been reading it. It's brilliant. It's so it's, it's, um, it's an amazing story. It's, it's very reminiscent. And you actually do mention this in the, uh, in the, in the, your introduction that it's, it, it just reminds, um, the reader of, of band of brothers, which was obviously set in Europe. Um, but that's, uh, following a company, a, a, a company of the 101st airborne in, in Europe. Uh, this follows a U.S. Marines company in the Pacific. And so my, I really wanted to kind of set the scene, really, um, to start off with, because in 1941, December, we have um, we have Pearl Harbor, the J Japanese unprovoked attack on the Americans. How do we get to K Company's first um assault on um territory possessed by the japanese which is not for um, many months later i think um how do we get from pearl harbor to k company's assault on i think it was guadalcanal yes it's a long and winding road and and thanks for uh thanks for the welcome back to the podcast ollie it was great fun chatting to you last time it's a, it's a very relaxed format i like that it's not too uh it's not too formal well, uh, it was a deliberate. Thanks, Saul. Uh, Sorry, I'm, I know I'm being very rude. I'm interrupting you straight off. Last time I was very mean and asked you questions about the 19th century. I'm not going to do that this time, but I, we are going to talk Ukraine. Sorry, carry on. Yeah, great. Well, I'm happy to do that because, as you know, I'm doing a podcast about Ukraine at the moment. But we'll we'll stick to the Second World War for most of our chat. Um, yes, it was a long and winding road. And if you go back to Churchill's determination to get the Americans into the war and how delighted he was when finally the news came that they were effectively forced in by the Japanese. And, and then it, almost immediately after that, uh, Germany declared war. So America were all in on, on, on both fronts, um, so to speak. But there were disasters in the early years, 
But there were disasters in the early months of this new alliance, um, not just befalling the, the British and the French, as had already happened, of course, uh, out in the Far East, but also the Americans. So one disaster after another, the loss of Singapore, Malaya, uh, the Dutch East Indies, Philippines, which, of course, was effectively being protected by the Americans at that point, um, and forcing the Allies back dangerously close to Australia, which was seen as a really important strategic possession for the Americans, which is where Guadalcanal comes into the story. Because um, if you look at a map of the Pacific, Guadalcanal is really in the South Pacific. It's quite close to the island of New Guinea, which itself is pretty close to the northern shore of Australia. So you can see how close the Japanese were getting. Now, they got to Guadalcanal, which actually at the time was part of a group of islands called the British Solomons. Um, and they were really using it, as they had done a lot of the islands they had captured up to this point, as a jumping off point for the next uh, bit of the advance. And ultimately, they were heading for Australia. There's no question about that. They fight a, a, a long and bloody campaign in New Guinea um, as part of the same process. And so Guadalcanal, or, or at least the attempted recapture of, of Guadalcanal, which is when where my company, K Company, of the three-fifth Marines comes into the play, is uh, was really the, the first Allied attempt to roll back the Japanese advance. Now, the troops involved were all Marines to begin with. It was the first Marine division, which was the first sort of amphibious uh, equipped and uh, expert uh, unit of the Second World War with that sort of capacity. Certainly on the Allied side, the, the Japanese had, uh, had had pretty good amphibious capability themselves. But the Oh, but American... they, were, they, were, they were the first Marines in, in, in Allied combat. Uh, the my my guys were which yeah. is why which was why we have the title first in last out they're, right. not only are they first marines ollie they're the first americans to take the offensive in the second world war so they literally are first in uh so when well, when are we talking about we're talking about august um 1942 and so what you can see from the end of pearl harbor to the beginning of Guadalcanal, as i've already explained is a series of defeats apart from one and this is the big naval battle of midway which if which takes place in june 1942 four uh, Japanese aircraft carriers are sunk compared to just one American. And in that battle, it was a very close run thing, actually. Uh, one, chiefly thanks to excellent intelligence that sort of cracked some of the Japanese codes and they knew where the Japanese fleet was heading to uh, and therefore were able to effectively ambush it. But it, it was a really key battle because they were heavily outnumbered by the Japanese fleet. And even after the loss of Midway, uh, that is the Japanese loss of Midway. The Japanese were still on the offensive in the South Pacific, hence the need uh, to fight the Battle of Guadalcanal. Uh, and Guadalcanal, uh, as no doubt we'll discover if, if you want me to get into any more detail on it, was a close run thing itself. Uh, and it was the first uh, maelstrom or the, you know, the, the, the experience of battle for these young Marines that I uh, characterize in the book. So with, with Australia being the... the um objective of the Japanese. I mean, how vulnerable was Australia? Well, it was very vulnerable. I mean, some of its best troops, of course, were fighting in the Middle East at this point, and they were eventually sent back to Australia, where they got in, involved in a lot of fistfights with American Marines and, and American servicemen more generally, because, of course, the Americans were there during a period of R&R, &R, particularly after Guadalcanal, where, of course, they were going out with the local Australian girls. So you can imagine this went down terribly badly. But but Australia was very vulnerable because, as I say, a lot of its troops were away. And secondly, it was a huge uh, uh, island that was very difficult to defend. I mean, there were far too many places the Japanese could have landed. So really, you needed to stop the Japanese before they launched an invasion of Australia, because if they had got there in any force, it, it would have been a very tough fight to eject them from the island, I suspect. Right, right. So vulnerable, uh, not only from the Japanese, but also Australian uh, American servicemen. Interesting. Yes. Um, so we get to Guadalcanal and reading, reading the um, reading the landing on, on the island, uh, initially, they land and nothing happened. Well, you know, they're not attacked immediately. Um, so one gets the impression that they're all, you know, huge, breathing a huge sigh of relief. But then there's this sort of terrible naval defeat early on, isn't there? And so Guadalcanal soon becomes this just horrific um, battle. 
Yeah, I mean, the problem uh, with the the campaign in Guadalcanal is, well, there were many problems, actually. It was very hurriedly organized. Um, they had poor intelligence. They really didn't know how many Japanese were on the island. In, in actual fact, they overestimated the number of defenders. But, but the real problem starts, as you say, Ollie, very soon after the landings, because the American fleet at that time, as I'm trying to suggest, was very much not in the ascendancy. It takes a hell of a beating at the Battle of Sabo Sound, where four uh, major cruisers, um, you know, that's one step down from a battleship, were sunk in a night action against the Japanese. The Japanese don't lose any ships in that action. And they forced the Americans to withdraw not only their battle fleets, but also all the supply ships. So not only are the Marines on the island effectively stranded, they don't have enough supplies or ammunition either. So it's a really, really tricky situation they find themselves in. And psychologically, to have your supply line severed like that with no chance of reinforcement at a time when the Japanese themselves were bringing in a lot of reinforcements was uh, very difficult for the, uh, for the young Marines to get their heads around. And, and this is, um, I mean, K Company, uh, this is their first real action, isn't it? And and this effectively, they're citizen soldiers, aren't they? So they're, they're, um, this is all new to them. Yeah, there were one or two regulars, of course, in the US Marines, as I say, they were becoming experts in, in amphibious warfare in the 1930s. But only a core of them were regulars. I, I, I would say 90 to 95% of, of K Company were citizen soldiers. They joined up either just before or just after Pearl Harbor. And these were guys from all over the United States. You know, you might think Marines, well, they probably come from coastal regions, uh, as uh, no doubt is mainly the case in the UK, but it's not true in America. They come from all over the place. And so these were guys with very, very different backgrounds. I mean, you had sort of confidence tricksters from New York. You had dirt poor farm boys from Texas and West Virginia. And you had college boys from, from you know, from New England and, and other parts of, of America, doctors, sons. And, and so you've got this real mixture of classes, actually, but all of them uh, forged to a certain extent in the harsh experience of America in the 1930s. And the interesting thing about the Japanese is that they thought spiritually they were far superior to the Americans and they would literally roll over uh, when they came into contact with the, you know, the redoubtable Imperial Japanese army. Uh, in actual fact, they came up against a very tough band of, uh, of people, as I say, who, who'd been forged in the fires of the depression of the 1930s and were very tough themselves, as the Japanese were about to find out. Now, oh, that's interesting. So the 30s played a, an important role. I mean, how was, what was their training like? brutally tough and and uh, you know training then and now for the US Marines is very tough as it is of course for for the Royal Marines and with the very good reason that they are designed as shock troops if you think of Marines as light infantry they're designed to be taken by ships to shore and fight on shore in a shock action really as a means of getting an army ashore they're not intended to fight for any length of time so a bit like paratroopers they are shock troops who are relatively lightly armed I mean they have artillery but not they don't have anything like as big support weapons as a U.S. Army division so a Marine division is much more light on its feet uh, and its job is to go in there uh, break the enemy at will and to do that it has to be supremely fit and supremely aggressive so really that's the that's effectively what the u.s marine training is and if you can't hack it you're kicked out pretty quickly so you've got an awful lot of guys who are naturally tough anyway and then they've been seared by this uh, training which effectively has turned them into some what, what you you will discover as you read the book i mean you've read it ollie but what the readers will discover uh, you know are some pretty effective uh, and dangerous killers well, I wanted to talk about some of the um, the guys in there. I mean, in particular, I was um, uh, just early on. You have Lieutenant Second Lieutenant um, Adams. Scoop, is it Scoop Adams and yeah. uh, Sergeant um, uh, Miller, T.I. Miller, um, who seem to make uh, quite a good team. Sadly, they don't remain together. Um, there are no spoilers. But um, the, the, the I just wanted to find out a little bit more about the characters who were in the early, you know, the Guadalcanal K, K Company. I mean, Miller was a wonderful uh, character who uh, is one of my key, key uh, personalities in the book. I mean, it's really based on probably five or six really major characters, one of whom is Miller. And the reason Miller is so important is that the story of K Company uh, in the second half of the of the Second World War, that is from Peleliu to Okinawa, is 
known a little bit for two reasons. One, because there's a very famous writer who wrote his experiences in K Company uh, during that period, and no doubt we'll come on to him in a minute. Uh, and secondly, because of the of the uh, mini series Pacific, and so we know a little bit about what happened in the second half, but we don't know anything like uh, enough. We don't have anything like enough detail about the first half. And Thurman Miller's really filled in some of the gaps. He was a wonderful character, in my view, or is a wonderful character because. He was pretty young at the time, 21, 22, when he joined the Marines. Uh, he comes from this dirt poor family in, in Appalachia, I mean, West Virginia. I mean, really, 15 siblings. I mean, they're brought up, you know, without running water in brutal conditions. And one of the reasons why, uh, interesting enough, Ollie, a lot of guys from Appalachia become good soldiers is because they do have this tough upbringing. They are used to, you know, going a certain amount of uh, hours every day without food and living in really tough conditions, walking on bare feet. I mean, they are designed really for the hardships of war. And But Miller's, Miller's a bigger personality than that because, uh, you know, as you discover reading his story, both the book that he's written that I partly base um, my memory of, of, or at least my account of him, in my book on, but also what everyone else says about him is that this this not only is a tough soldier, a soldier who leads from the front, but also someone with great sensitivity, as you can as you can sense as you're reading his book. For example, when he leaves the uh, K Company halfway through the story, because he served his time, he's been in the in the Marines for long enough, and he's done two campaigns. He's heartbroken, I and mean, he really doesn't want to go. And he goes because he thinks if he stays, he'll probably he'll probably be killed, and he was almost certainly right. But he 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 hates leaving his fellow Marines, particularly the young guys in the lurch. So on the one hand, you've got him who comes up. Yeah, through the ranks, so to speak, an enlisted man. On the other hand, you've got Adams, who's a college boy scoop, as you as you mentioned. I mean, he he uh, was a New England college boy. He's he wants to become a journalist. He comes from a middle class background, basically. So so very different, uh, almost completely contrasting uh, upbringing. But as you'll also see in the British Army, if there's a closeness between young officers and enlisted men, the, the social background just, just disappears. Uh, it is of no account. But they have to be the right type of leader. And Scoop Adams definitely was. He was the sort of person who all the sources I use in the book say the th same thing, would have followed him anywhere. And there's one other character who, of course, comes along later on in the book, who's very much like that in the same vein. And he becomes company commander of K Company for two of the campaigns, and that's Andrew Haldane, uh, AA or ACAC Haldane, who also features, as I mentioned uh, before, uh, in the mini mini series The Pacific. It's interesting though how um, soldiers they, they they sort of suss out characters who or officers who um, are really not effective as leaders pretty quickly, don't they? And it, and very difficult for them to change their minds either, which. I guess you're in a you're in a, you're in a, a situation where your life is dependent on these these leaders. So I, you can understand why. But it, it can't be easy for the uh, officers in command. No. And many of them were very young. And, and when the war was underway, of course, they were coming out with no experience and being pitched into some pretty brutal battles. Um, and very few of them in reality actually stood the test. I would say of the 20 or 30 officers that I name check as coming through K Company in one capacity or another, either as company commander, platoon commander, or commanding the various different different elements of K Company. You know, only a handful really uh, do the, uh, the men approve of. And you see the same qualities in all of them. They have great sort of moral authority. They, they have moral courage. Now, Ollie, you know, as I, I think some of your audience might know, you come from a military background yourself, and you're family, if not you, will absolutely understand the importance of, of, of making decisions that might be unpopular, that may not be effective for your own career, but you, you, you're making the right decision. And the men always know that. They always know who's, who's effectively hiding, uh, uh, certainly when it comes to combat. And the, the best company commanders during the story of K Company were the ones who were always at the front. And they almost, almost all paid uh, the price as a result of that. I mean, you see an awful lot of officers being killed in the Marines. In fact, 
I think I would go so far as to say, just as it was in the British Army in the First World War, it was the most dangerous rank to hold in the whole of the American military in the Second World War, because so many of them were killed. The, the standards were so high and the expectations were so high from the men that, that they almost had to leave from the front if they, if they wanted to survive. An awful lot of officers actually are kicked out of K Company in one stage or another, including Captain Patterson, who's their first company commander at Guadalcanal, because he's clearly hiding uh, and, and not leading from the front and not setting um, uh, his men an example. Yeah, it, I guess, I, um, so we deal with, with issues like PTSD that aren't really addressed in the, um, in the source, they don't sort of refer to PTSD, but I guess that's what we see a lot of um, experienced by not, well, obviously not only officers, but also the uh, serving men. Did you did you how much of the PTSD did you see throughout the uh, the um, the campaigns? I think it's always there. It's it's you know it's a very good question actually. Uh, what I concentrate on particularly towards the end of the book is how these guys, the survivors, that is, an awful lot of them don't get through four campaigns or in or even one campaign. But how how these survivors uh, cope with the rest of their lives, uh, including people like Miller. Uh, as Sledge, who no doubt will come on to Eugene Sledge, who's written one of the most famous memoirs of the Second World War. And there's no doubt you can see from the way they write that they were suffering badly uh, from PTSD. What the, the reason your question is interesting is because I, I wasn't particularly on the alert for looking out for signs of it during the campaigns themselves. It's true that quite a few people uh, are brought out of the lines with nervous exhaustion, which you could say effectively is the same thing, particularly in Okinawa, where there are incredibly high levels of, of combat stress and, and they are brought out of the line, you know, to give them a chance to reset uh, and to carry on. But uh, certainly in the earlier campaigns, when people don't do well, maybe I don't give them enough credit for the fact that they probably are suffering from PTSD. So Patterson, for example, I mean, who knows? It's pure speculation. Um, there's another officer later on called Ellington, Duke Ellington, who also is a bit of a slippery customer. Uh, and it's possible he too just couldn't stand the rigors of combat. Certainly you see in the personalities of some of the people, not just the officers, but also the men, because this, this was not just me picking on the officers. If, 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 a, if an enlisted man is not doing his duty, he's pretty quickly called out. And I'm not hiding any of those stories. And while you've got that on the one hand, you've also got some really brutal behavior by the Marines on the other hand. And again, this may be a sign of them, you know, all cracking up under the strain to a certain extent. I don't think they were to a man, those that is those who committed atrocities, bad people. I just think they'd been taken to a place where, uh, you know, they really couldn't cope and they were doing awful things because they felt that the Japanese, uh, you know, had 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 set the ball rolling, so to speak, which which was true. It doesn't excuse it in my view, but it might explain it a little bit. Mm. And 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 I guess it's sort of um, prompted, but from from all the horrific fighting that they had in in um, well to start off with in Guadalcanal, um, which uh, it'd be interesting just to understand what was the objective at Guadalcanal beyond you know um, taking it, because it's a is it nearly six months they're fighting on this island. Yeah, it's a brutal back and forth. I mean, we've talked a little bit about the 1st Marine Division being marooned there. I mean, the US Navy does eventually return and land reinforcements, and it's just as well it does because the, the Japanese are landing an awful lot of reinforcements themselves. I mean, they eventually get thirty to 40,000 troops on the island. In fact, they lose 30,000 dead, uh, both soldiers, airmen uh, uh, and army, uh, in the battle for Guadalcanal. So you can see how seriously the Japanese were taking it. But the, the strategic objective was to get hold of the airfield, which it almost always was in these island battles, because, of course, air power is crucial. It, it can negate sea power, as we can see so many times during the Second World War. And it's why the aircraft carrier was so important. It's like a sort of moving um, airfield, isn't it? Um, the initial plan was to capture the island, which they did very quickly. But because they were stranded and because the Japanese were landing so many troops themselves on Guadalcanal, it really became a race against time to protect and defend the airfield. They were really uh, being uh, surrounded. It was it was more like a siege than a campaign of conquest. Uh, and as I say, it was a race against time to bring in more reinforcements and eventually to break the back of the uh, of, of the many many Japanese attempts to break into the perimeter. I mean, it's a it's almost a kind of Alamo situation, particularly during the early weeks of Guadalcanal, and they're being shelled by these huge 
Japanese battleships with 14 inch guns, which, you know, when they're when you're packed into a relatively small perimeter, terrible concussive effects of, of these shells. And of course, again, probably some of that produced a bit of PTSD as well, uh, no doubt. And the conditions on Guadalcanal, I, I mean, I've um, I, I've put a little image behind me to remind Saul listeners so he knows <laughs> what it's like. Um, obviously, it's nothing like a, a nice, pretty picture of, of jungle grass behind me. But the conditions on the uh, on the island were pretty horrific. I mean, reading about um, things like jungle rot, malaria, other diseases, it, it's not fun at all. And they had this throughout the Pacific um um, campaign didn't they yeah it's a harsh tropical climate uh, they are battling the elements as well as the japanese and the japanese were formidable uh, in themselves not least because they refused to surrender i mean we you know we can i'm sure the listeners know all about the sort of code of bushido and the and the dishonorable uh, uh, sense that the Japanese have of anyone surrendering, which is why they tended not to surrender themselves. And when they did take prisoners of war, they treated them very badly. Um, it was a sort of mad code of honor, uh, frankly, but but they they held to it nonetheless. And it, and it produced some pretty brutal scenes during the Second World War, particularly in the Pacific. But the uh, the Marines um, uh, and K Company had to battle the elements too. And, and the elements were so tough that they got very sick with, you know, a lot of the things you've been talking about, um, uh, chronic malaria, dysentery, uh, jungle sores, uh, and, and, and frankly, a lack of nutrition. And they were being kept awake all the time. And, you, you know, when you're defending a perimeter like they were for weeks on end, you get no rest at all. And they, they, when they finally left, they leave in, in December 1942, by which time the campaign, or at least the main uh, uh, part of the campaign is over and the island is fairly secure, although the Japanese last embers uh, are, are not extinguished until a couple of months later. But when they leave, they're, they're real, really shadows of, of the men that landed. And, and it's one of the reasons why it takes them so long to get back into action, because to rebuild the division, not just in terms of numbers, but also the physical state of the people who'd survived is going to take an awful long time. And, that, and that's why they go down to Australia to, you know, to rest and refit. Yeah, it's 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 horrific. I don't know if you've um, ever had jungle rot, Saul. Um, I, I I asked that seriously because a friend of mine has. He went to Borneo for a travel um, company and and uh, was living in the the jungle for a few weeks and and um, he just he said it was the smell that was the worst possible thing. So just um, imagining what that's like in months on end, horrific. Yeah, I no. Well, uh, I haven't had it. Uh, I'm very <laughs> glad I haven't. But I have read lots of first-hand accounts, as is the way of a historian. He t- tends to read about things rather than experience them, and it does sound utterly horrific. I mean, just it, to give you a sense of the of the physical decline of these guys, Miller, uh, who we've spoken about before, Thurman Miller, uh, came out weighing about 115 pounds, and he'd gone in weighing 160. Uh, and he's a guy who wouldn't have had an ounce of fat on him to begin with in the first place. So you can imagine having lost a third of your body weight. Uh, they came out like scarecrows, uh, emaciated scarecrows. And I think psychologically, as well as physically, it took a long time to build them up again so that they could uh, go to war. Uh, and as I said, Ollie, it's one of the reasons why there's quite a big gap between Guadalcanal and the next uh, pretty fearsome fight, which takes place on, on the island, New Britain, which is further north from Guadalcanal, but all part of the same campaign to push the Japanese back. Well, well you've mentioned the Japanese um, and and their, their treatment or their view on surrender. But what was the American view of the, the Japanese? Was there a, 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 a grudging respect or was it sort of pure hatred? Did it vary? I mean, it's very interesting. Some of the sources suggest that at the outset, the Marines were not convinced they could they could beat them. Uh, you know, there was this not just the Marines, American military generally were slightly infected with this sense that the Japanese were supermen and that, you know, would they be a match for them? Well, they quickly realized they were a match for them, but they also got dragged into a sort of tit for tat war of atrocities, frankly, which, of course, is not going to do anyone any good. Uh, it goes without saying. And it dragged them to the depths of the abyss, really. I mean, Eugene Sledge is best on this. I, I mentioned him before. He joins K Company in Pella, uh, prior to Peleliu, which is the third of the four campaigns. Uh, and he's wonderfully eloquent on 
what war can do to men uh, and the depths of despair it can take them and the the acts that they're prepared to commit uh, as a result of all of that and he even talks uh, uh, at one point about how he almost joins in i mean one of the favorite acts of the marines was was to take gold teeth off the japanese and they did it chiefly from corpses but you didn't always have to be dead and there's one particularly grim scene um, which i won't go into the details of but you know they're trying to extract teeth from this guy who's badly wounded but he's not dead and and uh, a fellow that is another marine who's not doing the extracting eventually walks up to the poor Japanese who's having this done to him and shoots him to put him out effectively, put him out of his misery. I mean, it's an absolutely horrific scene, but uh, Eugene uh, Sledge recounts it with real honesty, uh, but also real sensitivity, I, I feel. And he admits himself that he uh, was heading down that track before he finally pulled himself you know, up from the depths of despair. Well, you've mentioned Eugene Sledge a few times, and he's written this um, hugely um, lauded book. It's still in print now, I think. Tom Hanks has is, is a huge fan of it. Um, he, he now, as you mentioned, he arrived at Pelilu, so he he was a a, um, a new influx marine. How did the how did the company deal with with um, replenishments, um, reinforcements into into the company? I think as veterans always do, they take take a take a bit of time to accept them. Uh, and Sledgehammer turns up. Uh, that was his nickname, but he doesn't get the nickname for a while. He's basically just a dog's body to begin with. And they're doubly suspicious of him because he comes from quite a well-to-do Alabama back background. His father is a quite a well-known physician in Mobile, the the uh, port in Alabama. Uh, his mother comes from a, a well-to-do family. He's basically upper middle class, and he's been brought up with servants. Uh, and it couldn't be more of a contrast from the Miller type background. Uh, McHenry is another of my favorite characters who comes from New York. Bergen all come from very, very poor backgrounds and all in K Company. Some of them actually serving alongside uh, uh, Sledge. Sledge joins the Mortar Platoon. It's quite interesting, or the Mortar Section, uh, as it's named. And what's interesting about the Mortar Section is that it's in the front line, but it's not quite right at the tip of the front line. And therefore, you probably see slightly more people in the Mortar Platoon, Mortar Section, sorry, surviving than in the Rifle Platoons. And there was a healthy rivalry between the two. But to imagine that Sledge didn't see the horrors of war because he was in the mortar section simply isn't true. Uh, but to answer your question, it did take them a while to accept him. Uh, but they got there because he was prepared to do what the best officers were prepared to do. You know, their background is irrelevant. You, you muck in, uh, you, do your, uh, you, you do your job and you don't flinch when the time comes to face the enemy. Now, Peleliu is, is one of these... Um... And one of these battles that I don't I don't know how well known it is. Um, Guadalcanal is quite famous. Iwo Jima, you know, from from films and things. But Perilu is is just so savage, and it's sort of the final stepping stone before they hit Jap Japanese territory, isn't it? Um, what happened on Perilu? Well, Peleliu is a very controversial campaign. It's a very small island, six miles by two miles. Um, and if you compare it to New Britain, which is uh, the previous campaign, and that's 370 miles long, uh, and even Okinawa, which is a pretty pretty decent size, that's 70 miles long, you get a sense that this is a tiny little location. And the reason it's controversial is that uh, certainly the veterans have argued ever since that it didn't need to be fought for. Well, I would suggest that the most recent scholarship uh, done on the campaigns of the Pacific doesn't entirely agree with that. They do feel that there was a justification for taking it. It was really protecting MacArthur's advance into the Philippines, but also it was an important naval and air base. And, and the reason those are those locations are important is because, you know, as you're, as you're advancing through the central Pacific, you need air bases, as I've already explained, but you also need places, anchorages, safe anchorages, for the fleet. So it's for all those reasons it was for. It was particularly brutal because the Japanese were actually uh, trying out a new tactic uh, of not defending the island by mass attacks on the enemy, which is really what they were doing on Guadalcanal for a big chunk of time and, uh, and also New Britain to a certain extent. But digging in to the center of the island uh, and really leaving the beaches, not uncontested because they did fight for the beaches, but, but uh, the main effort was to be a battle of attrition in the center of the island. And they had 11,000 troops on this tiny island. The Marine Division itself is, is more than 20,000 strong. So it, it turned into a hell of a slugging match. Um, fought at incredibly close quarters and with some 
some of the most brutal fighting I've ever read, read about in any period of history, including, you know, Genghis Khan and, you know, Simon Seabag Montefiore's got a book out called The World with some pretty bad stuff in it. But, you know, this isn't equal to any of the uh, terrible uh, campaigns that have been fought in world history, in my view. And one of the reasons is the tactics the Japanese use uh, and the nature of the island, which is coral rock. So it's very difficult to not much cover. Uh, and also the danger of the coral rock, which which was also an issue on Okinawa, is that when it's hit by a, uh, any kind of projectile, it, it splinters. And therefore, uh, it's a force multiplier in terms of shrapnel and horrific uh, terrain to fight on. And again, all the same problems with um, uh, tropical warfare, with illness. Uh, uh. But the real issue, I think, on, on Peleliu was this terrible slogging match was beginning to take its toll mentally on, on the soldiers. You've mentioned MacArthur, who Douglas MacArthur, this um, was he the American Supreme Commander, a hugely charismatic figure, but um, he's on his way to building up his reputation. What was the view of the of K Company? What, what was their view of of their uh, of their leadership of the senior leadership? Well, they weren't impressed by MacArthur. I mean, <laughs> MacArthur was army, of course, so there was a prejudice against against the army. And the U.S. Marines, in case any of the listeners aren't aware, are really a branch of the of the uh, U.S. Navy, or at least they're they're considered another uh, marine. Uh, naval uh, unit uh, as opposed to the army. So they tend to side with the Navy. And and for most of the Second World War, the 1st Marine Division and therefore K Company were under naval command. But occasionally they came under MacArthur, in particular at at New Britain. Uh, And MacArthur was not popular. There was a sort of um, belief that he'd cut and run uh, from the Philippines earlier in the war, leaving the 4th Marines, which is one of the most famous Marine units, uh, to be captured almost in entirety. And, and a lot of Marines blamed MacArthur. It's not really fair to blame him. He was ordered to uh, leave the Philippines at the end. Um, but he is a controversial figure. He, he, he was a capable commander. I wouldn't say he was a brilliant commander, but he was a, he was a great self-publicist. Uh, and so he... Uh, insisted. I mean, his his modus operandi was mainly to use army troops because he was an army commander, and therefore he was going to attack the larger uh, islands. And of course, the, the biggest of the lot before you get to Japanese was the Philippines. And he really had unfinished business in the Philippines, so it was a question of getting back there. MacArthur is an important figure in the book in the sense that he comes into it multiple times. He was never supreme commander in the Pacific, interesting enough. And he he was slated to become the supreme commander if the final attack on Japan had taken place. But of course, it does not. Uh, And up until that point, you would call him a theatre commander uh, who had his equal in other theatres that were also in the Pacific. I was interested reading, um, reading the book, The View Back at Home in America, because I wondered how much the war in the Pacific um, visa, you know, compared with the war in Europe, were they competing for attention um, on the, um, back, in, back, in, back in the homeland? Well, the official policy, uh, that is governmental policy, was Germany first. So the, the European theatre of operations, as it was known in American military parlance, uh, had precedence over, over the Pacific theatre. Uh, but in reality, the American public were much more interested in what was going on in the Pacific for the very good reason that, of course, the Japanese had attacked them and the Germans hadn't. Uh, and their determination to gain revenge from, from Pearl Harbor meant that there was a lot of interest in what was going on uh, in, in the fighting along the Pacific. And it's one of the reasons why, um, apart from Patton, uh, you, you see that some of these major characters uh, from from the Pacific theater were much better known and Nimitz of course is another one um and their focus was what was, was what was going on there and it was a slow you you know the, the the it's really interesting when you look at the map of the Pacific it's an enormous area I mean you've got 6,000 miles separating uh, Japan from the U.S. mainland and therefore the effort uh for the Americans there was as much logistical as it was you know in terms of pure fighting prowess um and America's ability to bring, build a lot of ships, particularly a lot of aircraft carriers, uh, battleships, supply ships and, every, and submarines and everything else, of course, was eventually going to take its toll on the Japanese. But the, you know, a very crucial ingredient in the story, particularly in the early uh, part of the Pacific War, were the Marines uh, and K Company, as I've explained, were there at the forefront. Mm. And, and so Okinawa was the, the final battle, which... 
Um, I know you've written about extensively in 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 your uh, Crucible of Hell book, which is oh, just fantastic. But by the end, w- what was morale like in the company? Because you say, you know, they, they they've been fighting their way through these fast um, fast numbers of kilometers from from you know the northern northern Australia all the way up to to Japan. What what was yeah? What was their morale like at the end? I would say morale in K Company is pretty bad by the end of the Okinawan campaign. And of course, uh, it needs to be stressed that most of the guys in the company thought that they were going to have to go on and actually land on mainland Japan. I mean, Okinawa was a one of the, in fact, it is the most or was the most southerly prefecture of Japan at that time. So it's part of the overall political system. It was never considered to be one of the home islands. But the real issue for K Company uh, by the time of the end of the Okinawan campaign is that is the sheer number of men they've lost. Uh, they've lost basically basically more than 200% of their personnel during the Okinawan campaign itself. And so you've only got a handful of originals, certainly people who fought in more than one campaign by the end of that. So in, in, in essence, Ollie, most of the veterans have either been killed, badly wounded, or returned to the US on rotation because they'd served their time in the Pacific. And therefore, You've got an awful lot of replacements in the in the company. I should just say a little thing, a little little bit about the the um, uh, the wastage of numbers in in most of these campaigns. The company would start out about two hundred strong, two hundred to two hundred and thirty strong, and it would end up usually with under a hundred effectives. And in some cases, uh, particularly in Okinawa, where it ended up with about sixty or seventy, it had had multiple replacements during the the long three month campaign anyway. So you can see it's an absolutely brutal wastage of men, and those few people who had survived became very hardened. I mean, you asked about how sledge was accepted. Well, if you were a replacement during an actual campaign, you were given very little time to uh, bed in. And the assumption among the veterans was you weren't going to survive very long. So they really didn't waste much time getting to know you. Um, And the real question I've asked myself, you know, the book naturally ends, of course, with with Okinawa, because that's the last big campaign of the Second World War. But the question I've asked myself is how would K Company performed if it actually had had to invade the Japanese home home islands as it was slated to do? Uh, and it is a big question mark because most of the best people were gone. Haldane uh, was gone. Um, Adams was gone. And a lot of the other people we've spoken about, Sledge was still there, but he was a relatively minor figure. He was a PFC, which is a Lance Corporal effectively in the British British Army. It's really the leaders, the senior NCOs and the officers that are the key to an effective unit. And most of the best people were gone by the end of Okinawa. So you could say in some senses, it was a it was a real saving grace. It certainly saved a lot of lives, but it probably uh, meant that the uh, K Company was able to leave the war with as vaunted a reputation as it did, because it really was one of the finest fighting companies of the Second World War. I, I suppose there would have been support from them for the um, the two bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, because um, that was that's always been the argument. You know, it provokes debate to this day, but that's always been the argument, hasn't it? Uh, had America had to invade Japan, um, so many um, on both sides would have been lost in the fighting to, to gain Japan. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, Truman makes the point when he's asked years later. Well, in fact, when he was asked at the time, actually, shortly after he had made the de- decision to drop the first bomb on Hiroshima um you know how can you justify and he said because an awful lot more people would have lost their lives including Japanese civilians and we know that that's almost certainly the case by the sheer number of casualties that were incurred on all sides including Japanese civilians uh, on Okinawa I mean horrific uh, numbers and, and so you can multiply them by uh, the Japanese home islands, given that the population was so much greater. Uh, And there is no question uh, that almost uh, to a man, K Company approved of the dropping of atomic weapons um, because of course it saved many of their lives and they simply uh, did not want to go on in this unbelievably pitiless form of warfare. And there was also a sense, let's be honest here, that the Japanese were beaten and why on earth would they want to go on fighting? But of course, just as the Germans had uh, long after the ultimate 
contest was decided one way or another. Um, The Japanese, right up until the dropping of both of those bombs, were looking like, or at least their senior uh, uh, military leadership, were looking like uh, they were very keen to continue the fight. Well, we've got grim subject matter um, throughout today because we're also going to go on to talk about um and and i should remind listeners this is devil dogs we've been talking about here but we're going to go on to talk about saul's uh, podcast battlefield ukraine and um this is obviously dealing with the you mentioned a pitiless uh, war in in the pacific this is a pretty pitiless war in the ukraine at the moment and your podcast, which has been doing really well, I, I've been listening to a few episodes. So I had a, I, I did have a few questions for you, Saul, um, because I know we've discussed uh, Ukraine in the past, um, and I just wondered where we, where, where are we right now? Um, you know, we're, we're speaking eighth uh, of November. This will go out on Saturday, uh, this coming Saturday. Um, where are we at the moment with with Ukraine? We, we've recently seen advances, but um, it's di- sometimes difficult for people to get a handle of, of what the situation is um, as of today or, or this week. Very difficult, um, which is one of the reasons why Patrick and I, that's Patrick Bishop, uh, my fellow military historian, and I decided to move from telling the story of the Falklands, which Patrick himself had been involved in as a, as a young war reporter, to you know what is currently going on i mean we're historians our job really is to make sense of what's happened in the past and this is unfolding in real time so in a sense it's a real challenge for me to sort of tackle these these sorts of issues as they're unfolding but it's also uh, very fascinating frankly uh, grimly fascinating i should add uh, not in a good way but it's fascinating nonetheless um I think where we are is in a bit of a hiatus, uh, to be truthful, Ollie. I'm, we're recording our latest episode tomorrow, and we always do a resume of the news. And there isn't a lot of big news this week, and and uh, that's always very telling. So you could say, well, both sides are, you know, are regathering their 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 sort of energies for a renewed push. But in reality, the only side that's going to be doing any pushing this side of Christmas is the Ukrainian side. Um, it has definitely got the upper hand on the battlefield, but that doesn't mean that it's going to win the war to the satisfaction of the Ukrainian people. And when I say the Ukrainian people, of course, I don't mean all of them, because there will be some who are strong sympathizers of the Russians. But I suspect that number is smaller now than it would have been at the beginning of the war. Uh, and it, it, it may be a relatively small majority. Uh, it may be a relatively small minority, even in the areas that the Russians would naturally would assume were pro-Russian. And of course, they're pro-Russian because a lot of ethnic Russians live there. I mean, you know, the obvious point to make, which I'm sure all the listeners are aware of, is that you've got ethnic Ukrainians and ethnic Russians. But just because you're ethnic Russian doesn't mean you don't believe in a united and free Ukraine. Uh, You know, you need to you you need to stress that point. So where are we? Well, um, they're drawing breath. I think the most likely scenario by the end of the year is that Kherson, this huge and very vital strategic strong point, uh, you know, a massive city, frankly, in the south on the on the uh, Donetsk River, that will almost certainly fall to Ukraine. All the indications are that that's going to be the case, although we did speculate um, in one of the episodes a couple of weeks ago, I think it was, that actually the, you know, the movement of the civilians out of there was to, you know, was the Russians were planning a Stalingrad type uh, campaign uh, and they were going to fight in the rubble and it, it was going to be a tough battle for, for the Ukrainians to win. So that is al- always a possibility. But I think the, the mood music around all of this is that the Russians are preparing a withdrawal. And of course, they're planning all kinds of, uh, of, of misinformation, possibly using the the loss of 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 Kherson as an excuse to you know up the ante with with their threats against uh, Ukrainian s- civilians which they don't need much encouragement frankly but of course we're all slightly alarmed at the possibility that they're going to use weapons of mass destruct mass destruction of one type or another and that doesn't have to be as blunt uh, a weapon as a, a a tactical nuclear weapon it could be of course the blowing of the dam, which is upriver of Kherson, to release, you know, absolute carnage in that region of Russia. It could be the use of dirty weapons, so-called dirty weapons. It could be the causing of a nuclear accident at Zaporizhia plant. You know, there are lots of things they could do. Uh, and frankly, I wouldn't put 
it it passed them to try them. I think the real worry they've got is that they overstep what America and NATO considers to be a red line. It may actually bring NATO into the war. And a lot of people would have said six months ago, that's never going to happen. But I don't think that's the case anymore. And, and, and you will know, Ollie, from a lot of the pronouncements coming from the West, that they are setting these red lines uh, and that it might bring them into the war if they're crossed. That's um, that's certainly a sobering thought. Uh, the a, a couple of the guests you've had on recently, uh, Owen Matthews, who's a, a Russia expert, um, Max Hastings, who's who's been on this podcast, who I'm sure many readers know, have talked about a kind of end game, and I, I was just interested in that. I, I, obviously, the war rages on. Um, but Owen Matthews made an interesting point that the Donbass, this region that seems to be um, within Russian, it sort of um, uh, has a kind of an emotional hold as well as uh, uh, having a military hold at the moment. He, he was making the argument that you should sort of cut it off like a gangrenous limb um, and then um, Ukraine retains the the rest of its uh, territory. And I wondered what your thoughts were on that, because the Ukrainians up until now, their objective is Russians out of everywhere. Yeah, I was very struck by his argument, actually. Uh, and it was quite compelling. The trouble is, Ollie, almost every week we have another expert with a different <laughs> point of view, and they all sound quite convincing to me, which will tell you, of course, that I'm a non-specialist in Eastern Europe. I mean, it's utterly fascinating to hear all these points of view, but I, I think one of the striking things of what Owen said, and, and you know, it should be stressed, he is not a he is not pro-Russia in this war by any stretch of the imagination. He just has an understanding of the Russian mindset. Um, you know, no one who's come on the programme feels that the invasion was justified in any sense. But of course, what we're really looking at, or the question you're asking is, is where do we go from here? You know, how do we extract, extract ourselves? Uh, more to the point, how does Ukraine extract itself from being turned into, you know, a basket case, in effect? It, it was the bread basket and it's becoming the basket case of Europe, not through its own fault. And one of the ways to do that, Owen suggests, is actually to cut its losses. And it may come to that, actually. I, I think what's been interesting this week, um, going back to your question of where we are in immediately is there have been some reports that uh, that the US in particular is putting a bit of pressure on uh, Zelensky to at least consider the possibility of negotiations. Now, this may be a ruse, as it's been suggested by some commentators, uh, or it may be them saying, do you know what, you know, a bit like the Owen Matthews argument, uh, you would be better off a free nation with secure borders, joining NATO, uh, welcomed uh, into the West, uh, rebuilt uh, with Western money and, and hopefully a bit of cash from the Russians, if it, if it can be extracted for them, or, or at least Russian accounts abroad, uh, and, you know, uh, become a proper Western nation with, with NATO security. And that's not a worst case scenario, in my view. Uh, although, of course, at the moment, given the blood that's been spilt and how angry the Ukrainians are, justifiably, uh, it's not something that Zelensky or any Ukrainian uh, politician can admit. Well, it's a fantastic podcast, Battlefield Ukraine. Um, I'll put all the links, as usual, in the show notes. Uh, so, Saul, I, I'm going to let you off, as I said. No 19th century World War One questions. <laughs> Maybe next time I can get you back on to talk about that. Um, but thank you very much for your time. Thanks, all. Great talking to you. And just one quick uh, correction is Battleground Ukraine. We were going to call it Battlefield, actually, but I think maybe the name was taken. So Battleground Ukraine. That's terrible. That sounds like I haven't been listening to it, and I have. <laughs> well, you've, you've just been clicking on the link. You can't expect to remember the name. It's very similar. Um, but anyway, great to talk to you, Ollie. Thanks for having me on again. I've put links to Battleground Ukraine in the show notes, along with Saul's new book. As I mentioned at the start, I've got Roger Morehouse next week and the bonus podcast of Top 10 Families coming soon. You can get hold of me on the Twitter or email me at history at aspectsofhistory.com if you've got any questions, ideas or comments. Thank you and good night.